you glad the, this election is only a few more weeks away? Um, are you ready to get on, uh, get past it? Uh, you know, as I, as I watch what's happening in our culture, it seems as though um, there's just a lot of animosity, don't you? I mean, it's just like we can't have debate anymore. It's just kind of like we're just at each other's throats almost. And uh, it's no longer good enough to just be for or against something. Uh, Now you have to be attacking and belittling and uh, sometimes even openly hating your opponent. I mean, maybe you saw this this last week. You know, they're having the Supreme Court justice... uh, hearing, right? And uh, before one of the sessions, the leaders from both sides of the aisle met each other before it started, and they shook hands and gave a little hug. You don't do that anymore. Not because of COVID, but because of politics. And all of a sudden, there was a call that one of them needed to step down and retire and get out of the Congress because they openly were cordial to the opponent. And I ask, what has become of us? You're no longer just a person who is to be valued because you're a person. Your value now comes from your associations, the groups you belong to. Whose side are you on? Who are you for? Who are you against? Are you white to black, Hispanic, Asian, poor, wealthy, college educated, high school dropout, a soccer mom, a senior, or a suburban woman? Who knew they were so important these days? But they are, you know. Whatever group you belong to is supposed to define you as a person, and there are expectations on what you're to value, how you're going to vote, and based on these group alliances. That's how you're supposed to act. Above all, despise those who are not like you. Again, what has become of us? The passage in Acts 10 that we're at today uh, speaks directly, I believe, to the current situation in our culture. And it's a story um, centered around two men. On one hand, you have the Gentile, Cornelius, and on the other hand, you have the Jew, the Apostle Peter. Cornelius lives in a Gentile city uh, called Caesarea, and Peter is where we left him last week when we saw that he raised Tabitha from the dead in the city of Joppa in Israel, and uh, Chuck Swindoll gives some background on this that I think is important. So let me read this little passage from his commentary. He says, every faithful Jew regarded Caesarea with religious and national disdain. Herod the Great had come in and rebuilt this dilapidated trading outpost into a new, thoroughly modern seaport and named it in honor of Caesar Augustus, thus the name Caesarea. It was an engineering marvel, quickly became the preferred harbor for merchant and military vessels. Gentiles loved Caesarea for the same reason Jews hated it. Herod had built it to rival Greek cities, complete with elaborate palaces, public buildings, a large amphitheater, a temple dedicated to Caesar in Rome, and statues of the emperor, the Roman emperor, surrounding the harbor entrance. Consequently, Caesarea became the capital of the Roman occupation in Israel, where governors maintained their year-round residence and where Gentiles congregated. To a faithful Jew, 
The city represented everything that was wrong with Israel. Roman domination, Gentile occupation, aided by these compromising Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews. So to the Jew, you don't go to Caesarea because it's an unclean city with unclean citizens called Gentiles. So the first part of the passage, we learn about this Gentile Cornelius, the first eight verses of chapter 10 of Acts. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. That's the whole message. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, we've learned a few things about Cornelius from that passage. He, he is an Italian centurion. I mean, this guy is as Roman as you can get. He's even Italian. Not that that means anything, but you know what I'm saying, okay? He was submissive to God. It says he was devout. It says that he was a generous person, and it says he was a man of prayer. You know, it's an interesting thing here when you, when you uh, kind of study this through the original language of Greek. And uh, uh, this word for prayer used in Acts 10 here is not the normal word that we would use for prayer. Prosuke is the word that usually appears almost always for the word prayer in the New Testament. This word, deo ma'i, means to beg as if you are bound. It's a much more urgent feel to the word. It's a much more persistent meaning to the word. Cornelius was not just, we can't get this idea that Cornelius was just faithful to his daily prayers, like he just said his prayers. No, Cornelius was passionately going to the Lord over and over and over, begging God for his favor upon him and his household. And the angel comes to him and says, Cornelius, your generosity and this passionate praying have ascended to God as a memorial. You think about that. What does that mean? It ascended to God as a memorial. What do memorials do? When you go visit a memorial, what does it provoke within you? It provokes you to remember what it's there for. Why, why is this memorial here? What happened to make it so significant that I constantly remember? And his prayers are constantly going up, and God is just continually hearing this man's prayers. This past uh, January, I went to France, and uh, I, I visited the U.S. cemetery at Omaha Beach in Normandy. And uh, I was there in January, so I was basically the only person there because nobody goes to France in January, okay? So I'm there standing on Omaha Beach, and there's this sea of crosses, and there's this memorial. I don't know, have you ever done that? I mean... 
it just made me remember all the sacrifice that had gone into that day and all the blood that was shed, and it just moved me. And, uh, and it happened before I was born even. <laughs> yes, it was before I was born. A long time before I was born. But memorials have a way of doing that. They, they, they just continually draw our attention. And the prayers of Cornelius is saying here is that his heart of generosity, God just kept hearing this. It kept coming. God couldn't shake, his, shake away from it if he wanted to because here it comes again. And he was moved. He included Cornelius in his plan, and we'll see the fruition of that plan in next week's message. And uh, he sends this angel to begin this process of, of, of expanding the gospel outside of the Jewish community into the Gentile community, and we're going to do it through your household, Cornelius. I don't know about you, but I want to pray that way, right? Don't you want to pray in such a way that they just have to say, your prayers are ascending like a memorial. You keep calling God's attention to. You keep gathering his attention to. And there's this constant reminder because of the way you pray. I mean, it's kind of like, you ever seen a kid ask for something and they just won't let it go? You know what I'm saying? Sometimes even teenagers do that, right? Amen, that's right. They want it so bad, and they keep asking, and they keep asking, and begging, and begging, and, uh, and the persistency is so off the charts, it just kind of almost becomes a little annoying to a parent. Amen. <laughs> and so I know this isn't good theology, but I'm going to put it up there, because hopefully you get the point. Pray as if you are annoying God, <laughs> knowing that you never can. Keep coming. Keep praying. Because you know why? When you are praying with this consistency and this passion, there is something that happens to you as the prayer. You can't pray this way and not be changed. <laughs> Cornelius cannot pray this way without seeing the fruition of what God is doing in his life. You can't pray this way and not be devout and not be generous, and not be in awe of who God is, and, uh, and so willing to just obey just because he says. It's important to see how this story develops because God is going to do something amazing, but he's not, he's not showing his cards yet. He's not revealing what's going on here yet. All the angel says to Cornelius is... Uh, God's heard your prayers, uh, so what we want you to do is send some of your guys to Joppa, Jewish territory, and fetch Peter, a guy you've never met. And I want to tell you that if I was Cornelius, I would have had some questions at this point, and so would you, right? Who is Peter? Um... The name sounds a bit Jewish to me, and uh, not sure that welcoming a Jew into Caesarea, and especially my Gentile home, is such a good idea. 
And it's hard for us to get a cultural understanding of what, how radical this is. I mean, I guess in today's climate, it could, it could be like saying that a, a, a Democrat asked a Republican out for lunch or something, okay? <laughs> this just didn't happen. But here's something to think about. God is not confined by our prejudice. Amen? All these little segregated groups that everybody keeps trying to push us into, and that's, that's your identity as your group. And uh, They're no match for the love of God and the gospel of grace. And uh, you have to be really, really careful because sometimes we say, but they're so ungodly and they're so anti-biblical and they're so wrong and... Uh, just think about those words, because what you're saying is, in order to be a part of us, you need to change first and then come in. Aren't you glad God didn't say that about you? You come in, and I'll change you. And the church needs to be a welcoming place for the broken of the world, I say. And sometimes it's prejudice that prevents that. Peter. Let's see what he's dealing with. Chapter 10, verse 9. On the next days, they were on their way and approaching the city. That's the men from Cornelius. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, but he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But, they were, but while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance, and he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground, and there were in this sheet all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him and, uh, get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. It happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky and now, while Peter's greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter, still up there on the roof, was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Get up, but get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings, for I have sent them myself." Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? So they give him just the information that they have. Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. So he invited them in and gave them lodging. So you see the situation. Peter goes to the roof to pray, and we know it's about noontime. It's time for lunch. And I immediately think, what is my prayer life like at lunchtime? Have you ever prayed when you're starving? That's part of the deal here, isn't it? Because the vision is about eating. He sees this vision. A sheet coming down filled with animals, all kinds. A voice says, kill and eat the animals. And he's starving. Remember that. Peter's reaction reveals his personality. Now, 
<laughs> you have to understand, just don't read over th- through it very quickly because we can kind of see ourselves some a little bit here. Okay, the Lord, there's this vision. Peter, how many of you think Peter really knew that this was from God, right? Okay, this is a vision. The voice is probably God speaking to him or the Holy Spirit speaking to him. And how many of us, when we really feel the Holy Spirit is just really moving and speaking, by no means, Lord, is our answer. You must be wrong, Lord. You can't make, you can't say that, you can't mean that I, you, no. I don't take my family from Austin, Texas around halfway around the world. No, we just don't do that. We have to understand that God is, he's changing centuries of Jewish culture in this vision. As a Jew raised in the law, Peter can't eat meat that's just killed. If you ever did eat meat as a Jew, it was, it was, it was killed ceremoniously and it was proper and it was clean and uh, Otherwise, you couldn't eat it or you're in violation. And God steps across that gulf and says, well, it's not that way anymore. And I'm saying what used to be unclean has been now cleansed. And as a Gentile, I'm so glad. (laughs) The passage says that this sheep filled with animals happened three times for Peter. Three is pretty significant in Peter's life, isn't it? Three denials, and then on the beach with Jesus, the three restorations, will you feed my sheep, feed my sheep? This may be just because Peter's Peter, you know? He needs something three times before it gets in, you know? I don't know. But when he hears that there are unclean Gentiles requesting him downstairs, one would think that he would kind of put this together. Oh! Oh, clean, oh, the animals, I can now eat them. You're talking about Gentiles, but the cultural divide is so great that he says the Spirit comes to him very personally and says, get up, Peter, go downstairs and go with them without any misgivings, and the word actually means without any doubting. Don't doubt that this is of me. Step out in faith and do as I am instructing Because Peter would not normally be inclined to go, and uh, his faith would object to this on spiritual grounds, because Jews didn't go with unclean Gentiles to unclean cities. You just don't do that. And Peter felt that he had been raised to believe that his prejudice was not only justified, it was necessary, it was even good. We need to keep separate from those dirty, unclean Gentiles. Jews, in order to remain right before God, had to be separate from them. See if this ever happens today. Our prejudice can be so ingrained that we think it holy. I think we've seen this often in the church. And People feel they have a, a right, even it's, 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 it's important to shun or ignore or divide along moral or ethical or even theological lines. And uh, I'm going to give you a personal opinion. 
I think God finds that disgusting. He sent his son into the world and gave him up as a sacrifice, and he did it for all people, for all cultures, for all times. And the person of Jesus Christ is this great unifier. He brings people from all races, all cultures, all denominations, all age groups, from all different paths, and because of grace, brings them all into his wonderful, glorious family, and they all just embrace one another because of him. His gospel is not exclusive for the uptight, all buttoned-up church people. Amen. I'll go a step further. His gospel is for the unclean. I remember when I uh, first started going to Moldova to teach at Moldova Bible Seminary, like, I don't know, 16 years ago. Was, I want, I, I'm going to tell you this before I tell you this story. I'm embarrassed to tell this story, okay? Is that all right? All right? Because as an American, I went thinking that uh, oh, this poor country, they need my help. No one else would think that, right? That would just be me, right? Oh, they need my experience, my expertise, my knowledge. They just, uh, they're just coming out of the Soviet Union, and they're going to have to have some help from Americans. And uh, over the years, I can tell you without reservation, they've taught me far more than I ever taught them far more. I remember one time, uh, one, I participated in the food ministry where they take food to the elderly, the forgotten elderly of Moldova. And in Moldova, uh, there's no safety net. There's no social security. There's, there's nothing that's going to catch you when you're old. It's up to your family. If your family doesn't come through or somebody doesn't come through, you're going to starve. And uh, the church has taken up a ministry to deliver groceries. And some folks, that's all they get to eat. I remember one such encounter that uh, I had with a woman. I'd been warned about this woman before we went because we had several stops to make to deliver the groceries. And they said, but this one, you have to, and I'll, we'll tell you before we, get, before we get there, but she is a Stalin-loving communist. What? We arrived, and um, she was very gracious to let us in, and through an interpreter, she told me how awesome how great Joseph Stalin was. How she is so sad that the USSR fell. She hates Boris Yeltsin. Oh, he's kind of the architect of that. And she was passionate. I mean, she was passionate in her defense of totalitarianism. And I listened, never trying to present an opposing view, obviously. She just kept talking. But what I will never forget is what happened when we were leaving. Because we presented her with the bags of food. We told her that Jesus loves her and that we have come because we love her. And she wept and she hugged us and she kissed us and she kept kissing us and hugging us. And it's one of those holy moments in my life. Because God was changing both the hearts of a communist and an American preacher all at the same time. 
And I've never been the same from that experience. And uh, I learned this. There is no prejudice in God's heart. There's just not. I hope this isn't revolutionary to you, but God loves communists. He doesn't love communism. He loves communists. God loves gay people. Uh, God loves inner city people. He loves Republicans and Democrats. God loves fascists and he loves Muslims and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and he loves them all. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He wants to change us all into the image of his son so that we can become his child and part of this amazing family. That's our heart, right? <laughs> One last thing I don't want us to miss about this story. When the angel appears to Cornelius, and like I've said, he tells him to send men to fetch Peter. That's it. That's all the message is. When the, when the Spirit speaks to Peter, he says, just go with them. That's it. God is initiating his plan. He's doing something amazing, but he's not tipping his hand, and, he, and there's a reason for that. You see, obedience that has to know the full plan is not obedience rooted in faith. And, and maybe you're a person that before you take step one, you need the whole thing. Anybody like that? I need to know how this turns out before I start down the path. And maybe you're a person who likes planning. Does anybody here like to plan? I know what that's like. I like to plan. You know, when I go on a trip, I like to know the exact route I'm going to take, right? You're with me, right? I like to know exactly uh, what restaurants we're going to eat at on the way, right? We don't make any rash decisions, no. I also, before we embark on the trip, I also know which gas stations we're going to get gas at. And I know the exact price of every one of the pumps at every gas station, and it is, that's the only way to do it, right? We're all together, right? Right? I mean, I like planning trips so much. I plan trips I know I'll never take. As I thought about this, I thought, I really need some help. Right? I remember when Cindy and I were just dating, and uh, I was taking, we were taking our first trip together to have her meet my parents we were traveling from Oklahoma City to Denver, where I grew up, and uh, I'd taken that trip so many times, I, I, I knew it, uh, going home from college. I knew where the best places to stop were. I even knew, uh, I knew where I was going to get gas on, along the way. My, my planning addiction was so warped, I would even time myself every trip I made to see if I could shave a few minutes off every time I would go. And on this trip with Cindy... Uh, as we approached the first gas stop uh, along the way, I announced to her that I felt like we could be in and out of here in like four minutes. We just have to time it right and, and hope this all works out. And so um, if, if you need to go to the bathroom, uh, do it immediately upon arrival, as, and I'll start the gas pump in four minutes. And uh, 
great. We arrive, there is an empty pump available, okay? And uh, we pull up, and she jumps out, and I love her so much. And um, she headed in, and I started the gas, and everything's going according to plan. I finished the gas, and I got set to go, and I got in the car, got behind the wheel, and waited. Fifteen minutes later. What were you doing in there? I can't remember exactly what she said, but it was like, this ain't going to work. And guess what? I relaxed, and the rest of the trip was awesome. And guess what else? She married me. <laughs> Amen! <laughs> Hebrews 11.8 used to scare me. Now I embrace it. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going. That's not me, naturally. But I've learned that with God, <laughs> there's no other way. There's no other way. I, I don't want it any other way. If I knew the whole plan, I probably wouldn't take step one, right? <laughs> Here's the point. God will probably never give you the whole plan. He wants you to trust him. Some of you are here today wanting, a, wanting the plan. You want to know how it's all going to work out. You're probably not going to get that from him. He's probably going to say, trust me and take this step. Because it's probably, all, it's probably not all about the plan. It's probably all about your faith. Am I willing to not know and trust? Do I trust that he will go before me and he will light my way? Will I trust, will I trust him to make a way, to work a miracle, to keep his promise, even when life can seem bumpy or rocky or scary or confusing or even sometimes just downright unstable? And uh, am I going to step out in faith in spite of my own personal biases and my own prejudice and my own comfort? And uh, will I step out just because I know he's calling and trust him for he always knows what he's doing? Amen? Father, I just uh, thank you for this, this story in the Bible that uh, if we will dive into it, we can see in our own selves this unearthing of natural biases that are products of our culture in which we've been raised. And uh, I pray, Father God, that the church would, uh, would not have the attitude of you change before you can be a part and change that to you're a part and Jesus will change you. I pray, Father God, that you would, uh, as you in my own life, would, as, would you minister in the hearts and lives of these here today and uncover in their own spirit, perhaps where there's a natural bias or a, something that keeps them from extending grace 
to maybe a people group or a person. I pray, Father, that faith would rise. Faith would rise to believe that when you call us to move in a certain direction, to take the first step, that, uh, that you are the light that will come and provide the way and the path forward. And you will make a way and you will work miracles and keep your promises. And, oh, I'm so thankful, Father God, for the power and the ministry of your word today. And I pray, Father God, that as we go from this place today, that there will be this call that you have on us to change, to be that living proof that was sung about, that living proof that God is on the move. Do this in us today.